This is episode 80 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 80 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I bring on the show for the second time, Spencer Gatton. And Spencer was involved in one of the very first episodes of this podcast. So I'd highly recommend that you go back and check that episode out if you haven't already heard it. But today's episode is different. We focus in on duplex conversions that Spencer is doing right now. He's doing two different projects that are both working out to be perfect burrs and more than perfect burrs because he's actually pulling over $30,000 out on each property and putting it in his pocket. So that's that's right. He's actually recycling his money to the point where he's actually getting some free money from the bank. Of course, he's got to pay the interest on it, but interest rates are low right now. Uh, and he gets to use that on future projects, which of course, this is how we accelerate and grow fast when we're real estate investors. We recycle our money and we make it work for us twice as hard. It was a really cool interview with Spencer. And one of the cool things about it was I actually connected him with the lender and the appraiser that ended up doing his project. And, in, and it's part of the reason that he was able to find a way to make this a perfect burr. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I wanted to reiterate the importance of having a network in real estate investing. So that means have a network of real estate investors that you talk to regularly, that you share ideas with, uh, and, and don't be stingy with the ideas. If you've got a good idea, share it and take advantage of those opportunities uh, when other people share ideas with you, because this is how we can all grow and help each other to have massive success in this industry. This is a testament to that. And of course, course, doing things like getting on the Greater Hamilton REI meetup group. Um, We're just digital right now with our Facebook group, but it helps as an opportunity to connect and get answers to questions that you have. Uh, So if you're not already in that group, I highly suggest that you get into that group. Link is in the show notes or in the description of this video. On some other news, I actually posted a story on Instagram this past week asking people why they thought that the stock market hadn't crashed yet. And I got a number of different responses, but most of them centered around the printing of money and the fact that the government is propping up the market right now. And I couldn't agree more with that. Last I had heard, there was about $750 billion a day getting printed in the US, uh, being used to buy up asset-backed securities and corporate bonds indirectly from the Federal Reserve. And that type of behavior is similar in Canada in that we are propped up by the US market. And of course, we have our own spending as well and our government giving its own incentives to different companies. So I think the real reason we haven't seen any deflation here, which is when prices go down, is just because the market uh, has been totally artificially propped up. And uh, of course, you can you can take from that what you will. You can think of that as you will. The reality of it is, is that this is unprecedented. We should have seen a crash. We should be in a deflationary, depressionary uh, period right now. And we really aren't. We're, we're rebounding uh, in terms of people spending. Uh, people are still spending. And the reason people haven't stopped spending is because they never lost. If you just lost your pension, you wouldn't be spending right now. But people didn't lose. Uh, overwhelmingly of course some people have uh but uh but overwhelmingly people have their retirement funds intact for now my concern as i've expressed it on this show is you can't print money like this and inject money like this without consequence and um this is why hard assets are so important and i know i might sound like a broken record to some people but i can't stress this enough i am extremely concerned about the value of our currency Uh, It's something I don't want to leave a lot of money in. I want to keep my money in hard assets as much as I can. 
Some of the things I think are good ideas, of course, are precious metals and obviously real estate, as long as you're prepared to weather the storm if, if mortgage interest rates go up. So with that being said, as always, please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you're on YouTube, same goes there. Give me a like, leave me a comment. And of course, if you wouldn't mind, I would greatly appreciate anyone who leaves me a review on Apple Podcasts just to let other people know what you think of the show. It helps it grow and I would really appreciate it. So thank you in advance for doing that. And thank you so much to those who've already done it. Without further ado, please enjoy the return of Spencer Gatton from episode five. We're now on episode 80. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Spencer Gatton on the show for the second time, about a year and maybe two months later. Spencer, how are you doing? I'm great, Andrew. Thank you for having me back. How are you? Good. Yeah, actually, it was probably longer than that ago because it was uh, maybe February or March of 2019 that you came on. And uh, you've been doing a lot of stuff, so I, I, we stay in touch and we always have interesting conversations. So I figured we'd just have a very casual one today and see what's up and see what you've been uh, been working on. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, why don't you kind of bring us up to speed? And, and some people aren't gonna aren't gonna have listened to the other episode, so uh, why don't you just start off with uh, telling everybody what you do? Okay, so uh, to give a bit of background on myself, uh, I am a real estate investor, but I'm also a real estate agent. I've uh, been investing for quite a few years now. I've owned a variety of types of properties, everything from single family to fourplexes. I haven't owned anything bigger than that, but who knows? I could be changing soon, working on some projects. But uh, I also have a YouTube channel that keeps me pretty busy, and uh, but most of my time is just spent on real estate, and uh, I love it. Well, you, okay. So last time you were on, you were not yet a realtor. I think you might've been working on it. Yeah. I was going through the licensing. Yeah. And you were still working full time at the, uh, at a different job Mm -hmm. and, um, you were really focused on the Welland Niagara region and, uh, I'm sure there's many other details that are escaping my mind. Uh, (laughs) but I know you were, you were doing a couple of joint ventures. You were out that way. Mostly, mostly Welland and St. Catharines. Is that still the case or have you, I know you've been talking to me about liquidating some of that stuff and, uh, give me the update. Yeah. So I, when I first started investing, I was investing in Welland, uh, St. Catharines and Niagara Falls. Um, my first property I ever bought was in Welland. It was a triplex and, uh, that was the first one. But since then I've kind of moved around a bit. So now I'm dealing in Kitchener and I'm dealing in London as well. Um, London is where our two major projects have been the last year. Um, would have been a, a few more projects, but obviously with the, uh, climate we had a bit of a slowdown on some of the projects so we can actually get into that stuff as well because i can talk about um some of the roadblocks that we actually hit and Mm -hmm. how we were able to kind of circumvent them and kind of fix the scenarios yeah so if uh, memory serves i know you're talking about doing two duplexes in london i'm not sure about the uh about the kitchener one but uh the duplexes in london you bought single family homes i think you were buying them in the in the 330 range or something like that yeah, really close. So great yeah. memory. But uh, one was at 320, one was at 325. But it was yeah. a, uh, they're both bungalows. And then we mm-hmm. were doing basement suite conversions on them. Yeah. Um, Those done so now? That, uh, yeah. So they're just, the first one is done 100%. The mm-hmm. second one is just putting the finishing touches on it right now. But we are already going through uh, the refinancing and all that uh, mm-hmm. process right now. So. No, I think I, I ended up referring you uh, somebody who's not the fastest financing guy. Did that end up working out or no? 
Well, so he's like, he was not the fastest, but he knows his stuff. And the other thing is yeah. he actually, uh, in the middle of the pandemic just left too. So we kind of had to start again. Um, oh, is he gone? Like he, he's not doing, he's not taking any new deals right now. Um, oh. and as far as I know, like we got handed off to a different person, but she's been amazing. Um, is it Lisa. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I know the whole crew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, you got the whole crew going. That's crazy. But uh, yeah, she's been amazing so far. Like she's been yeah. way more responsive and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So it's been great working with her. Yeah. So um, John is one of the guys that uh, I think I told you this way back when the, the benefit of him was that he actually had direct connections to appraisers in London where he could specifically pick the guy. And, um, I never figured out exactly how he was doing it, but I think it was so much as a phone call, like, Hey, you know, Drew, I just submitted it. <laughs> Can you get on out there? Uh, you know, pick up this deal and, and go appraise it. Um, which is, you know, we've gone over that so many times on this podcast, why that's important because, um, mm-hmm. having appraisers that understand an area versus appraisers that maybe work in another area. Um, I'm sure that made a difference for you. Did you find out what the value, like, did you ever end up having, uh, this Drew guy appraise your property? Yeah, we, we went through the whole process with John like to get the, to the appraisal point. But then once the appraisals were completed is when he was like, okay, yeah, it's all done pretty much. So I'm just going to leave now, and then you guys can start over. Uh, but luckily they let us keep the same appraisals and everything. So like, cause it was attached to the file. So we basically yeah. just handed off the files, but we had to regather information and they wanted us to restart on some other things and they had to do a couple more walk arounds and stuff like that. But, um, it worked out really well. Like it yeah. definitely, uh, definitely worked really well. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll get into those numbers in a little bit. Um, but I, you know, the reason I dig into that is it's not to harp on anybody, but I think in this industry, one thing I've learned is, is, is you take the good with the bad sometimes. And, you know, there are people that'll, that'll help you accomplish a certain result, but might be slow. I've, I've obviously in the trades business, you've witnessed that over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's gotta be like the squeaky wheel. I feel like this business is all about being a squeaky wheel, which is kind of annoying if I'm being blunt. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's part of the process and create your systems, create your follow-ups, I guess. And, and, uh, hopefully things get smoother as you go. Yeah, that's, that's a perfect example, honestly. And I think, um, that's a good point to mention to a lot of people who are looking to get into this. The squeaky wheel does get the grease. And if you're trying to get with contractors, contractors, even with the lockdowns and everything that was happening are very busy. So you still are going to need to keep on top of them to try and find somebody who's good. And even just to get quotes in some of these situations, like we were having to like recall somebody multiple times just to get them to come by to quote. And it's just something that you need to be prepared for that. It's not, you know, some super easy situation where you call one person, you get the amazing quote that you need and you move on from there. Like it's going to take like a process. And obviously you've touched on in your episode, it's about building teams too. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying for the people who are starting at the beginning, be prepared that like when you're building your team, it's going to take you that process of being the squeaky wheel that's showing that you can add benefit to them by being reoccurring business and that you're going to pay them on time and do all that stuff. Yeah. But it's going to definitely help you in the long run with building your team. Well, are you, I think you did hire a general contractor, right? Yeah. So it's like a half, half kind of, so like, I'm very involved in the project. So they do, we're lucky that the guys who are doing it do most of the work themselves. The only thing that they hire out is like the, the trade stuff. So the plumbing, the electrical and all that, but they'll do everything else. They'll do the framing, the drywall, um, all the finishing, the flooring. So that was pretty easy, but I was like still having to find an HVAC guy and I was still working with them on really? that. So yeah, they had, um, they had contacts for the other ones and then like, but we still kind of went, mm-hmm. uh, 
with their guys for the electrical. So they ended up hooking us up with an amazing electrical contractor. The guy's awesome, super responsive. So we just used his guy and they just coordinated with him. But a lot of the time, like every kind of step of the project is still run through me, but they're doing the majority of the legwork. Yeah. So out of curiosity, um, what, so you had to have the panel tied in, right? Uh, so you had a second panel put in upstairs and so they had to cut all the circuits out and and reroute them, uh, for upstairs. Right. So it's a fairly invasive process to separate the the electrical. Yeah. The one was really bad too, because, Mm -hmm. um, they had done some like homeowner special renovations and like the homeowner must've done a bunch of the electrical himself Mm -hmm. and put it behind where, uh, they had just renovated the kitchen. So the upstairs unit, they basically, the electrician had to pull almost all new wires. So he was like fishing wires through and pulling and rerunning a lot of stuff for that upstairs yeah. unit. So, so a lot of like just holes in the drywall so they could pass stuff through. Yeah. They had to do a lot of stuff, yeah. but it, it worked out like it was an easy fix for them to like, like I said, he was great. So it was awesome, but um, it was just way more than he expected when he first like, came in and quoted it. And it did, did take him a bit longer, but not, he was there every day. It's just <laughs> the homeowner special sometimes. So what'd you get into for uh, electrical? I'm assuming you did a second service and yeah. then you uh, separate, sur- separate the panels. So they both have one uh, se- uh, separate circuits uh, for each unit. Um, what was the cost for, like for that? Just, I'm just curious how electrical was. Yeah. So it came to, because he had to do the extra stuff and everything, it came yeah. to uh, roughly, I guess not exactly this, but around 13,000. Okay. But that was to do, like he ran the whole unit downstairs, upstairs, everything like that. Yeah. Do the service and, and they cut his yeah. own holes to do all the, uh, all... C- cut his own holes. He got yeah. the panel and like that was including the cost of the panel, including yeah. all that stuff. So he just, he yeah. took care of all that. It was great dealing with them. Yeah. It sounds like a good one. Um, yeah, you should have reached out to me on the HVAC stuff. I could have uh, given you a couple of recommendations, but, uh, yeah, there's so many going around. Maybe you found a good one I could use too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always like finding new ones, like, you know, just building relationships with people. It's great. We, so we didn't actually have a great experience with this HVAC guy. Um, he wasn't horrible. Like the work was fine, but what was bad was his scheduling. And that's another thing that this is like a point worth noting, especially with the timelines that we had with the lockdowns is scheduling can be so critical because we needed the HVAC to be done on site the one time because the electrician, where the ducts were running, there was like shared space, but they couldn't really run the wires until the HVAC had been done. But the electrician was already scheduled to come in on the Thursday, but the HVAC guy didn't come in and do his work. So then when he came in on the Thursday, it wasn't done. He couldn't do his work, but because he was scheduled for those days, he couldn't come back for another week. Yeah. So it like that just because, you know, and, and, and the guy, dealing with the HVAC guy was like, he was a nice enough guy to deal with, but just that um, poor scheduling, which is, it happened on both projects, um, was enough that it was like, man, that delayed us a week on this one and, you know, a week and a half on the other one. So it's like, you can't do that when you're like, the timelines are that tight and you've got other trades who are lined up. So, um, we have another contract now who will be using moving forward. Right. Yeah. These are the challenges of, of being your own general contractor. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I know you, you've hired one, but you're basically having the issues of, of having not. And, uh, yeah, so you're getting involved you know, a lot of people who, who uh, would just hire a GC would never really know the inner workings of all the little problems that come day to day, uh, specifically having these different trades work with each other and not step on each other's toes and put stuff where the other stuff, you know, the other person needs to work and all that. Yeah. Um, there's just so many moving parts and then that's where you get into a lot of time, um, that, that can cause delays. And yeah, I think 
as you know, with, with what I was doing, just the student rentals, it couldn't go over time. And that was a big reason why I was, I was running my own show and just, mm-hmm. you know, if I, if I came to the site and there was no one there, I'm, I'm on the phone that's the squeaky wheel part. Right. Whereas if you hire a GC, they might not even be on site. So if you're not kind of showing your face there, um, things can move slower. Yeah. Are you on site or do you show up to site fairly often to, to make your presence known? Oh yeah. And I was doing surprise visits all the time. Not cause I didn't trust the GC, the GC, yeah. like, the, like I'm calling them a GC because they did a lot of the general work themselves. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I had to manage a lot yeah. of it as well, but they, they were amazing. Like dealing with them. I was never concerned about them being there and doing the work, like everything. And then we even got compliments from the inspectors when they were doing the occupancy inspection saying like, this must be the nicest unit in the area and everything like that. So they, they did a great job. I mean, what they were great with picking materials when we were like trying to, piece everything together. Um, so they were awesome. It was more of like, okay, see just what was happening on the overall project. And now I've built that, like after doing two with them now, I feel way more comfortable that I don't have to go there weekly or a couple times a week or anything anymore, because it's like, I know that they're getting the work done. They just did two projects with us. And so on the third and the fourth, I'm not going to worry about it. So what was the timing like, um, for, for one of these projects? And I guess before you tell, tell me that, um, upstairs, were you doing like new kitchen or really just closing your patch holes and paint and flooring? Um, so it was a little bit different for both of them. Okay. Um, these two most recent ones, but the one we had to do full kitchen cause it just had a tiny little like galley kitchen, but then they also boxed it, boxed it in with like a kind of like a peninsula tile, uh, type thing. It was really bad. But, um, so we ripped that whole thing out and then that's also where we were, uh, patching and separating the units anyway. So it worked out perfectly anyways. And so we rebuilt a wall and we built the laundry at the end of the hall and then also built in a brand new kitchen, quartz, uh, countertops. Like, so we do stone. We like to do the uh, subway tile backsplash. It just kind of makes it a little bit tougher because okay. then you don't have to do it as much. But so we did a pretty big project there. And then obviously with rerunning the electrical, the interconnected smoke alarms, um, we also had to do some bathroom work on that one. And then on the other one, we didn't have to do the kitchen, but we did have to fix like ceiling damage. And we redid a full bathroom upstairs because it was like really old and really small. So we redid that. Uh, and then paint flooring and the okay. stuff like that. So very interesting. Okay. So what kind of uh, timeline to, to get all that done were you? Well, there's the timeline of what it should have been. And then there's the virus timeline <laughs> because, uh, we were trying to, we got the luck of the draw and we got probably the worst inspector in the city. And, uh, he was, before any of these things had even happened with like the lockdown rules and changes, he was making it difficult. So it kept delaying our project, but he was delaying the project based on like personal anecdotes, not code. So the one that was the the funniest one that he said was we had like, you know, how building code for a basement suite for anybody doesn't know. Generally they want a minimum ceiling height of six foot five. Um, so in our one area, it was uh, actually over six foot five. It was six foot five and a half. But he was like, oh, well, that seems pretty low. And we're like, well, it doesn't matter if it seems low. It is code. And he's like, yeah, but if a firefighter comes through and they're wearing their helmet, they could hit their head on it and knock themselves out. And I was like, you can't just make up a potential example. And then so we had like, so he originally uh, wouldn't pass it because of that. So we had to call somebody higher than him and say, listen, we've got it at six foot five and a half. And it was only for uh, the bulkhead. Everywhere right. else was over like seven feet. So it's like, oh my gosh. 
Um, Isn't that so- crazy? Because that actually is in, in London. Every every city has their bylaw written a bit differently, but in London, yeah, six point six and a, six foot five inches is the, yeah. uh, for the low point. But you're supposed to be six ten um, everywhere else, I think. Yeah, we're um, seven everywhere else. It's yeah. just that one spot on the bulkhead where mm-hmm. it's like the support beam, basically. Right. Uh, yeah. And then we we uh, married it together with that. But, um, that's just one spot. It's so small. Like, and it was literally through one walkway and he's just like, no, you know, I'm going to have to delay that. And it was like, okay. And then, so that pushed us back. And then what ended up happening is because that was the first project. And so we kept getting that delayed, 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 delayed. And we had bought these properties at the same time because the timelines worked perfect from like, okay, this one closes here. Then we'll finish this in the time we'll get it rented. We'll get it refinanced. We'll work on the second one. But the because he kept pushing it back, he pushed it back so far that we ended up into the lockdown stages. So then they weren't even doing inspections anymore. They stopped doing so inspections? They stopped doing inspections. So hmm. we had to... Um, and then here's the other part. So they were still doing inspections on new construction, but because this was an existing building, he was like, oh, I'm not doing it. We're like, it's a vacant property. Nobody lives there. This is a new unit. And cause we hadn't put renters upstairs or anything. And he's just like, no, I'll, like I can't do it cause it's existing. We can only do it on new construction. Then we find out weeks later, he was wrong. They were allowed to do it on that. So we waited for weeks because he just wouldn't come through and do it. And this guy, um, <laughs> he was just hilarious, but, uh, like he, they were allowed to uh, it, later on, they were allowed to do FaceTime inspections on stuff they had already seen. And since he had already seen a bunch of stuff, we only needed the, the sign off on a few of these things. And then, so we set up, a FaceTime inspection. He had my contractor drive to site. My contractor lives almost an hour away from the property. Contractor drives to the site. They go to do the FaceTime inspection. They call him and he goes, you know what? I don't feel comfortable doing a FaceTime inspection. (laughs) Waited till the contractor was on site. So he was just doing that and, um, he wouldn't inspect the HVAC. So this is, this is something that, uh, a little tip that, I'll give to other people who are looking to do this possibly because who knows with these lockdowns, who knows what's going to happen in a year, who knows what's going to happen if we go through this situation again. But um, the cities, they didn't actually advertise this to us, but they'll take third-party inspections. So yeah. we went to third-party engineering companies and we had to pay that out of pocket versus you know having the city do it. But it moved our project along yeah. to have the third-party engineering companies come through and then they sign off on the plans. And then we that's how we were able to get through the lockdowns with the inspections was using the third parties. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good thing to have in your back pocket. And um, man, like I, I've seen it all over the place. Like you, you just get such inconsistency with, with inspectors, which is why it really, really pays to be diplomatic and, and try and be a problem solver, try and work with them because everyone has their own opinion and in their own interpretation, uh, which that leaves a lot of uncertainty in this game. Uh, so you really got to, you know, politely and diplomatically fight for what you believe in and, and, uh, and your project to get it done. But man, that sounds like you had your, uh, your series of obstacles. So you started what, like October or September of 2019 on these projects or was it later? No. So we didn't really take possession. We weren't really in the project started until January. Okay. um, Okay. Because of the delays, like we, we had started. And so everything like we should have been done very quickly, but because of the delays, we didn't even finish the first one until uh, like officially got occupancy permits until about three weeks ago. So you were starting January to August. Yeah. That's, that's longer than you want to take on that stuff, but way longer, but I mean, nobody saw a global Mm -hmm. pandemic that was going to lock down everything coming at the time. So, 
Well, yeah, that, that hit everybody uh, sideways, I'm sure. Um, what was your, let's just pick one of them, uh, whatever one's fresher in your mind, uh, and let's just run through a little case study. So what was your purchase price on, just pick one of them? Uh, so I'll just go with the first one because that one's 100% done. So we have all the numbers. Sure. Um, yeah. And so that one we bought at 325. We actually got it at an amazing price. We got it under asking when stuff's really hot. So yeah. um, we just, that's one thing it was, we kind of got it in the middle of winter and that's like a little tip that like, you know, you can find some deals still in the winter What most people shut down, but it's good to keep an eye on the market. But, um, we got it, it was listed at three forty, and we got it at three twenty five. So that's, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are just scratching their head wondering how you even got it for three twenty five at all, or <laughs> even in that price range. Cause for a bungalow, you know, thousand square feet where you can finish a basement unit, that's, uh, that's not that easy to come by. No, so no, yeah, was... especially in London now, right? Like now, you, you know, that same inventory you bought would probably be going closer to, to 400. I'm assuming, or maybe 375. Oh yeah. If we had, if we had done no work to it and just lit- listed it again, and right like now? just waited a few months, it would be close to 400. Assuming we just did zero work. Did nothing. Yeah. 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 That's uh fortunate. I, I know the neighborhood you bought in and, and, uh, you know, I think it was like one of those neighborhoods where people weren't really looking at it too closely, but it's a very quiet, quaint neighborhood, you know, tucked mm-hmm. away streets, which I mean, as long as you don't have through streets, there's, there's lots of uh, room to improve the neighborhood and stuff. So that's, uh, it's a great opportunity. What did you end up uh, renovation carrying costs? What'd you end up getting into? So roughly, um, if I want to consider like carrying costs, renos full mm-hmm. like and doing the third party inspectors, this project was for sure way more expensive than it should have been because mm-hmm. of the timelines and everything that we went through it. Yeah. Um, so it ended up costing us about 120, um, okay. which like we could have done it for less had we not had all of like the yeah. breakdowns and everything like that, but it was about 120. Okay. And then what did your appraisal come in at? So we were pretty happy with the appraisal. It came in at 600. And I remember you talking to me about this, hoping you could get what, like a 450 appraisal or something. Well, originally I said, I was like, oh man, because, uh, there was a few things and I was like, okay, well, I think between 450 and 500, I'd be happy because, you know, we'll get a lot of our down payment back. We'll get a lot of the, mm-hmm. the, the rental costs. And be, because at this point, so I've done a lot of burrs, um, mm-hmm. in my investing, but I've never been fortunate enough yet. I will have now, but where to the point where you get all of your renovations, all of your down payment and take out a little bit of money. And I'd always heard this scenario when I was like starting out, like, wait, you can burr and take out money. Like, how is that possible? Um, and you know, like six or seven burr deals later, like some of the ones we have are just buying holds, but six or seven burrs later finally hit the first, you know, major burr that made all the money and got it back. And yeah, not to toot my own horn, but I think you owe me a beer. (laughs) <laughs> I do owe you a beer. Yeah, I texted you that though. I said I'll. Get, I was like, "Hey, man, like, thanks. Like, I'll buy you whatever you want. I'll take you out for dinner. I'll do whatever." Yeah, that's. No, I'm. I'm glad. You know, that's that's the whole thing about kind of paying it forward in the investing world and networking and connecting with people and you know seeing how you can help other people because I think it's just you know hopefully what goes around comes around in this world and and I I just love that about the investor community. You know, everybody yeah. wants to help everybody. So that's that's great. So you're you're looking at. If you get 80%, which I think you should, um, you'd get $480,000 as a mortgage. And uh, that, that compared to your purchase and reno and carrying costs, which is about four forty-five, 
that's a $35,000 takeout. Well, it's more, right? Because we're getting our full down payment back and we're getting, Oh, that's what I mean. I mean, you're getting everything back. That's 35 K in profit. Well, yeah, I I don't like to say profit, profit. but I like to say money. You're getting paid $35,000 to keep the property. You got everything you put in back plus $35,000. So that's, that's the perfect. Well, that's even more than a perfect burr. Perfect burr. I consider just to be getting everything back. In this case, you're getting everything back plus 35000 which you can now invest into another property uh, and use it to continue growing your portfolio. Well, that's, yeah, that's like, a, it was a home run deal. And I consider, because my other burrs that we've done, we've always gotten the down payment back and then some of the renovation costs, but had to leave a lot of it in. But where you kind of run the numbers on that, why that's still a benefit is, okay, so let's say the asset was 400000 when you bought it you had to put in 40 grand in renovations and then it's worth um, 500,000 at the end of it. Well, you left the 40 grand in the deal, but you now have a $500,000 asset that you owe Mm -hmm. that you own that you only have $40,000 into. That's, you know, less than 10%. Right. Yeah. Like if you're looking at sort of what, what do you have as a, like as equity in the property? Yeah. For for ROI, for overall ROI. For calculating your ROI. Yeah. You're going to be, you're going to be looking really, really good. Um, Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, but like, not only is your ROI much higher on that property itself now, mm-hmm. you also have the down payment back. So you can use that down payment to buy yeah. another one. So then it's like, okay, well, how much are the returns when you calculate those together? Yeah. You, if you want to grow fast in this business, you've got to find a way to recycle your money. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's the key. And it's, it's kind of in a way getting creative. Like in London, not a lot of people are doing these basement suites, which is the conversation we had. Cause I was aware of that and I, I knew it wasn't very popular. Um, so it was interesting, you know, you kind of took something that was popular in the Ham- Hamilton Niagara area, took it over to London. Um, so there was really no reason that it shouldn't, shouldn't be successful. And the nice part is, um, the appraiser that valued it isn't really giving you uh, a discount or he's not really taking off much of the value for the fact that it's a basement unit versus what a lot of other people in London have been doing, which is these backyard units, which I've done mm. uh, like a unit in the backyard. So I'm curious what mine would be worth now. If yours is 600, I wonder what, what I could get for mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder like, cause yours like your above ground one that you built, like the one that's on grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like an amazing unit when, yeah. So I think it's, definitely worth more than that yeah it's a two bed um and it's about it's about 920 square feet and it's got its own private backyard and it's above grade yeah it's like the key thing being above grade just for for daylight but i'm I'm assuming you probably uh, have pretty good daylight in your your basement unit as units as well yeah so we actually cut in way more windows than we had to uh the the reason being it's the ROI on it's huge because you just get a way nicer property, Mm -hmm. which means you're going to get a way nicer tenant and people who are happier to live downstairs. And it's safer because all of the windows that we cut in are egress windows. And so Mm -hmm. the light, we hit all the light um, requirements. And then we also now have extra fire safety in each room, basically, because all of the windows are cut in. So for us, we feel more comfortable as the owner. So you Mm -hmm. can't really quantify that from a dollar value, but I feel more comfortable knowing that, okay, they're in the basement, but we've got windows in every room that they can escape from if anything is to happen. And as well, they're enjoying it more from a natural light perspective and everything. So you get the higher rents and I think it pays for itself. I think it's a no brainer. Anything that I'm like, okay, from my standpoint, that's definitely a better unit means that I'm going to be able to sell it better. You know, not everybody cares about that, but if I know who I'm going after and I know for sure they're going to value that, 
more often than not, as long as it's a reasonable upgrade, I'll do it. Um, like things like quartz countertops or having an overhang on my peninsula rather than just having it flush with the back of the cabinets. Mm-hmm. I like the overhang cause people can pull up seats, but then I'm, you know, I just calculated it on a one project right now and it's about seven square feet more times $40 a square foot. So there's, there's a nominal cost there, but I'm like, well, what is that? Is that one eighth of one month's rent or, you know, one. Yeah. So, so you just kind of have to quantify it. Well, can I reasonably justify that? Can I use this or can I use that as a selling point to maybe get a few extra bucks in rent? Maybe not, but it might rent faster. And if it rents faster, maybe it saves me a little bit of vacancy. So I try and look at things that way. Um, because it's way cheaper to do it when you're renovating than it is to say, oh crap, I should have done that and go back later and do it. Well, it's twice the cost because the big cost, especially with um, cutting out the windows is the digging, mm-hmm. right? Because they got to yeah. drive the machine there. You got to pay for the rental. You got to do all that. So if the machine's already on site and you're paying for the day's rental, mm-hmm. you're not paying any extra for them to dig a couple more holes. Yeah. And then it's just, okay, now you're replacing a few more windows, which you probably were doing anyways, if it's an older building because they're basement crappy windows. So it's like, okay, well now they've already dug the holes. You cut them. It's really not that much extra compared to already replacing the two or yeah. whatever windows you're planning on doing. So I think it's, I definitely think it's worth it. Most people should do it. The company that used to do mine, they, they would dig them by hand. They, those guys were, they ate their Wheaties every morning. Jeez, yeah, there's one guy would, yeah, a couple hours, the guys dug a hole. I'm like, holy crap. How'd you do yeah, that? That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's definitely worth doing. Um, it's more of a, a lot of, a lot of heavy effort for those that those jobs like the window itself is only a few hundred bucks it's yeah. all the preparation uh to be able to put that window in that's big um that's why there's such a huge opportunity for people who do the work themselves to save a ton of money it's just opportunity cost on your time like if you mm-hmm. try and get in and do all those jobs uh for me i'd go nuts like i'd f- <laughs> many many times that i try and pick up a tool and help and i then i ended up throwing that tool and picking up my phone and saying all right <laughs> you gotta get over here <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna start breaking things uh, um, so that, yeah. that was kind of, for me, like I like getting involved in work, but only when there's not a gun to my head, like only when it's like I can casually get involved and help out a bit. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't like digging holes though. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, I'm not digging a hole either. Yeah. Upper unit. Um, what are you expecting it to rent for? So they're already rented. So I have the true numbers. Okay, um, let's do it. Yeah. But we got it rented at 1750 plus hydro. Okay. And uh, the lower unit is 1450 plus hydro oh that's pretty solid man yeah good good numbers okay so let's see here total this up so that is yeah we're gonna do a full full breakdown of your return here so we have 3200 a month in uh rental income your uh, property taxes what do you figure they're gonna be after they well i'm hoping they don't reassess your property but, uh, um, well, we're lucky it was actually just reassessed so yeah. it won't be reassessed for a few more years um hopefully because they did famous last words yeah exactly <laughs> they call that a special assessment um, yeah exactly i got slapped um, with with a bunch of those one year all my i had i had properties that uh like the property taxes were like 2200 went up to 4200 so wow. uh, I don't think that would happen for you because there's no precedent for the value of your property. If anything, it'd be a marginal increase. That's my, mm-hmm. my uh, guess. But um, yeah, what, what, is, uh, what are the property taxes now? Like 3,500? Uh, it's, it's actually a little bit less even. Um, the, I think the total is 3,200. Okay. We'll just leave it there for now. Was, we can, yeah, you we can, can play sense. We can play sensitivity on that number. If like we're kind yeah. of concerned, Hey, maybe, maybe that goes because up. I want to say it's yeah. two, 270 a month. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, insurance, this is one that, uh, 
that I just got smacked with insurance rates this year. I just got my renewals and across four properties uh, that were on one policy, I got uh, a $2,500 increase. Like on each one or just over overall the portfolio? Okay. Overall, yeah, that's yeah. still a lot, but um, yeah, very, our insurance yeah. is uh, about 125 125 a month? Yeah. 125 times. This is, I just bring that up because that's why it's so important to do sensitivity on your numbers. Like, what if something changes? Or do I still have cash flow? Yeah. Um, so, maintenance, I've got 5% as a default here, which works out to 1920 across the year. I doubt you'll spend that in your first year after renovating. Um, yeah, but- and we also, uh, we negotiated cause we actually could have probably got higher for the main floor unit, but yeah. we found a tenant who was already taking care of their other property. And so we said like, Hey, listen, you guys take care of the snow. Like, cause we originally had it listed at 1850. Okay. Um, and I don't usually like to do this, but because like we weren't, we just wanted to get somebody in there. So mm-hmm. that's one other thing too. Like if you, if you want to wait, two extra months, that's two months of vacancy to get a hundred dollars extra a month. I don't think it's worth it because from a cash flow perspective, if you can get 1750 right away or wait two months and get 1850, how much, you know, how many years of cash flow is that before you've broken even on those two months of vacancy? I agree. If it's a true either, or I agree with you 100%. Um, I, I don't know how often that would be the case, but yeah, 1850 might be pushing it for if you only have the upstairs. Um, I think it's doable. I think it is doable there, but, uh, we had shows agree with yeah, we actually had a lot of showings at eighteen fifty, even with it being the upper unit. Just nobody pulled the trigger on it. That's when I was like, oh, okay, okay, I think we're a little too high. Like people were interested enough to come see it, but they but it weren't wasn't gonna work. Yeah. yeah, they were like, okay, you know, eighteen fifty is a little high. So then when we were kind of talking to the people, we said, hey, listen, we're asking eighteen fifty, but if you would take care of the lawn and take care of the snow, what would, you know, would you be interested in 1750? Cause I like, you know, now we don't have to worry about that. And they've been doing yeah. an amazing job. They like, oh, I drive by the property all the time just to double check. Cause now like, yeah. t- usually we would hire services on all of our other properties. We have services. This is a kind of a, a test run on having the tenants take care of it. And uh, it's amazing. They even set up their own little garden in the back and mm-hmm. they're taking care of the lawn so far. I mean, it's hopefully the snow keeps up with that. So that that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, and I totally agree with that sentiment to have the tenants do it is so much easier than hiring a service. Um, you know, paying, paying 1200 for the year, you could probably find a service to do it in a similar ballpark, but at the same time, I like having the tenants do it. I like having them be responsible for it. Um, I know there's pros and cons. Some people would argue to that, but, uh, definitely don't disagree. So for, so for maintenance, I was more just talking about your, you know, our key doesn't work. We need a locksmith. Yeah. We need to repaint this or, you know, you have turnover or something like that. I like to budget 5%. Um, yeah. for management, Same are here. you, are you going to, um, are you going to be having a manager? Um, for now I'm going to keep managing myself. I've always managed myself. I do mm-hmm. think that, um, you can, manage it yourself, especially when you're starting out when we were trying to, you know, continue to build the cash flow in the background. And I was able to mm-hmm. do it just because I knew I had enough systems. I mean, I've even been managing remotely from the properties in Niagara because I have a uh, handyman on call who I can literally just send a text to with the property address and the problem. And so when my tenants text me and they say, Hey, listen, you know, toilet's leaking. Okay. No problem. Uh, fired off to them. He's there the next day, usually or within a couple of days. 
uh, depending on the level of emergency. And he sends me an invoice. I've got a lockbox on site. And then, you know, now it's just every few months I go through, uh, usually every like four months or whatever, I like to kind of swing by and go to the actual property myself and say like, hey guys, how's it going? And walk around and kind of see what's going on. Wow, you follow my model, Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe I follow yours, I don't know. Uh, but I do the same thing. Yeah, lockboxes on the properties or keypadded doors, um, have somebody who can who can go by, have somebody local, um, have a handyman local, somebody you, you text with or can call. Um, these are all things. I mean, as long as you don't mind being the central hub of information flowing through, um, it, it totally works. You just got to ha- have your processes for, for how people... Uh, you know, if they have a maintenance request, they send you an email. That's what I just make my tenants do. And then I just assign it to uh, my handyman. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So I just put in like 1% for management. You might have odds and ends, little, little fees, uh, or we could even just say zero and put in a miscellaneous at the end. So we'll leave that for now. Um, utilities wise, you're going to have a cost for water and a cost for gas, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're paying that, but we, so, we also put a cap on it so that they can't go crazy with it. Um, and so like, cause for the most part, they're not going to hit the cap. It's like the caps are really high where it's almost impossible. Like the cap on the gas is $200 a month. Like they're not going to do $200 a month in gas. That's like crazy. I guess we don't, cause we don't have rentals there. So to, that would just be pure gas charges. But if they do go over, they are responsible mm-hmm. for the overages. Same with the water. I could see it going to 2,500 for the year between both gas and, and water. Is that what mm-hmm. you're thinking? Oh yeah. That's yeah. like what we've got budgeted out for mm-hmm. sure. Okay. Good guess. All right. So, uh, miscellaneous, just whatever costs, I'll just put 500 bucks and, uh, okay. So your valuation was 600,000. Let's see what your cash flow is going to look like. And that's 80% mortgage. So interest rate wise, uh, do you know what the bank's looking at right now? Yeah, we got uh, 2.2%. 2.2%. So that would be an $1,820 mortgage payment at 30 years on a $480,000 mortgage, which is the 80% we talked about. So that's 578000 or sorry, 1000 Wow. No, that's $578 <laughs> uh, a month. You know, including including our five percent maintenance, we have a five hundred dollar miscellaneous plus your utilities and your insurance and your taxes. So, uh, some of the things that might change your your you know, say your taxes got reassessed to four thousand, that would drop your cash flow down to five hundred and eleven dollars. Not a big difference. And then if something happened maintenance wise, you had a, a spike. You know, say it went to eight percent, you'd still be four hundred and eighty two dollars. So I just like to play with those numbers a little bit. Um, well, even if you add on. Yeah. And on management, we're still like, I, my yeah. rule of thumb for the minimum after refinance on a burr is I always want to be at, at least 125 per unit mm-hmm. in cash flow on the building because that's like your true cash flow. Not like, oh, right. you know, if, no, if everything goes perfect, it's this. Right. But I mean, yeah. like, of true bottom line minimum number, mm-hmm. 125 per door in true cash flow. If you can hit that, you'll always have extra, like, you know, extras at the end of the year of, assuming yeah. it's not worst case scenario on everything. Yeah. Yeah. I like to be really real about my numbers too. I don't, I don't like to fudge them or, or you know, gross them up and make, make them higher than they should be. I'd r- I really like just be really real about it. I don't pay management, but I do budget, you know, software charges and whatever else I use uh, towards yeah. my properties. So um, yeah, like the numbers look great on this. Like you still, even if you had management at 9%, um, you'd still have $290 across the building, which beats your threshold. You yeah. need 250 on that building to, uh, to make sense of it. So, uh, yeah, that's great. 
perfect burr for you. Uh, as far as a return on investment, we can't calculate one, but let me just get rid of that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hard to... um, but your total return is going to be uh, a pay down, an annual pay down of about $12,000. Um, if you get appreciation at 3%, which I think is reasonable for London, uh, that's 18,000 in a year. And then you have annual cash flow of, uh, 6,900. So that works out to be $37,000 a year. So that's pretty good. It's not bad for something that just paid you $35,000. So it paid you 35 and it's going to give you another 37 over the next 12 months. So that's, uh, again, why we invest in real estate, uh, until a better system comes along. This one works pretty well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what do you, what are your thoughts? I know we spent a lot of time kind of dissecting this deal. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the London market? What's going on right now? Um, or any other market you're investing in? I know like obviously COVID's had an effect, but I don't think it's been a negative effect on, on the London market. No, not at all. It's actually been the opposite. London's hotter than it's ever been because there's a lot of people escaping the city. Uh, like I've got new clients right now who are from Brampton and they're like, we, you know, we can work anywhere why do we need to work in the city where there's lockdowns happening and all these other things? Yeah. Cause the other thing is a lot of younger people are leaving Toronto who couldn't afford to buy in Toronto, but can afford to buy in London because they're working from home and they're going, well, the benefit of living in Toronto as a young person is there's the nightlife and there's the restaurants and there's all these other like activities that you can do. So they were saying, if I don't get to enjoy this, well, why don't I move to London, buy a house? Like you can buy a nice 1300, uh, 1500 square foot home, for like three quarters of the price you'd get for a 500 square foot condo <laughs> in Toronto. So it's like, it's a no brainer if you're working from home, why would you rather live in the small box when you could buy a place and kind of make that your office and do all that. So coming across a lot of that for London. Yeah. A friend of mine just bought a, a new home for himself, like 800 K I think he paid or just over 800 for something that was 3,600 square feet. Is that in London? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, you're getting mini mansions at that 800k price but then meanwhile for a new build in toronto it's 800k for a two-bedroom unit so it's like oh man well you know things are it takes the market a while to figure itself out and i think the market's really figuring itself out right now but the cost of new construction right now is just going through the roof especially with and uh, i hate to say i called it but i did call it uh supply chain disruption um yes it's hard to find lumber right now and uh, the cost of lumber's up like another 40 percent over probably what it was. Um, I'm, I'm totally guessing on that. I haven't actually compared, um, you know, side by side, but it's up quite a bit, like two by four, um, by eights. I think, I think we just paid like over $4. I think we paid like $4 and 45 cents for them or something like that. Um, it's pretty crazy how, how much everything's up just because the supply chains are down because of, of factories that shut down because of COVID. Yeah. We actually ran into a couple, uh, material delays, Mm -hmm. um, during the shutdowns as well. Like there was a couple of times where they're like, Hey, you know, we had these, uh, already ordered, but they couldn't fill the lumbers, uh, order this week. And it was like, it was never anything huge, like three weeks or whatever, but there was a couple of days where it's like, Oh, you know, we couldn't get access to this yeah. right away. So I, th I thought it'd be worse. Uh, it, it hasn't been bad on most things. I, I would say that the one that's, I'm really grateful. We got that part out of the way on the townhouses I'm building right now is, is the lumber. If that had yeah. happened in the middle, Oh man, that would have been bad. Yeah definitely not, um, not where you want to find yourself. Yeah. The one, the one thing I'll say about London, cause, uh, like people hear these numbers and be like, that's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. the one thing you do have to know is there's two things. One, uh, London 
is like, obviously it's like spiking a lot right now. So the numbers aren't going to be as great because I got in like right before this happened. So there's not as many deals available at the 325,000. Um, but the other thing is London's basement suite rule, which I'm sure you had to go through this because any sort of accessory suite is there's a 40% rule and that's on the overall building area. So if you have a thousand, uh, square foot bungalow, they do like the thousand upstairs and thousand downstairs. So you, the biggest unit you can possibly build is 800 square feet. So you do have a, some more hoops to jump through in the city of London to try and mm-hmm. negotiate and figure out how you're going to actually use that 200 square feet. Like, are you just going to have a way bigger HVAC room? Is there like a hallway that you can dedicate to the upstairs unit? Like, what are you going to do? So we had to do a few different designs with the city for them to like kind of honor our permits and be like, Oh, well, you know, the square footage on that is too big. So you can't do this or you had to do it. You can't access through this hallway because then that's technically part of this unit. So there are cities where you don't have to deal with that 40% rule um, where it is a a little bit easier. Uh, But that's just something to be aware of when you're looking at London that that 40% rule exists. Yeah, London set this arbitrary date as well. So you can't just like go build a, an addition and then say, "Hey, I have you know two thousand square feet now. Let me do let me do eight hundred square feet." Um, their cutoff was the the square footage had to have existed by July thirty first, twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. So as long as it existed on or before that date, then you can use that towards your allocated 40%. Otherwise, you can't use it. Uh, unless they've changed that rule, I don't believe they have changed it yet. Uh, I think they will eventually change that. But uh, yeah, that so it kind of restricts you. So so looking at properties, there's there's not that many that, that would fit my criteria for wanting to be able to add a second unit. Yeah, that's that's kind of the hard part. Um, you're you're definitely a bit more limited uh, based on that square footage rule because there's some where maybe the design of the basement, because of what you have to do to break it up, it's like, oh, well, we're limited on space anyways. And because of where this wall is and we can't move this, because of the design we're going to have to do, it's not going to work. So it definitely limits some things. But when you find the deal, like it's there's still a process and there's still a system. So you can still find a property that works. I just helped a client find a perfect basement suite property. He's going to, and his is even better than ours because he got a raised bungalow. So all of the windows are already like egress size. So all he needs to do is replace the windows, no digging, which is amazing. Mm. And he got that in London and um, his bungalow is even 1100 square feet. So it's even a little bit bigger than the thousand square feet. So his basement unit already is going to have way more natural light and it's going to be way bigger than ours are. And like, so he's going to do super, super well on that. They're going to, the rents are going to be higher and everything. He's going to do really well. So those deals exist. We just had to look for a little bit before we found it. Yeah. You kind of have to be patient. It's a real seller's market in London right now. Yeah. But we lost in a lot of competitions before we got that one. It seems to cut off though. London seems to cut off once you hit that $800,000 threshold. It's like people aren't really willing to spend that much more um, for a lot more square footage. It's like there's a, there's a huge fight for anything in the 300, 400, 500 range. And then that fight kind of dwindles uh, after that. I don't know if that's what you've seen, but that's what I've definitely seen in, in my time kind of watching the market. Oh, that's exactly it. Like if it's in the threes, be prepared to be competing against like five to eight other people. But then as soon as you jump to like the sixes, you may not compete with anybody, but maybe one or two people or something like that. That's kind of like, and then at, at the 800 range, it's legitimately just sitting and it might sit for two or three weeks and then you get the chance to go in and offer. But at the sixes, the stuff's still selling very quickly. It's just maybe not in like a super competitive 
uh, scenario. So yeah. like they're, they're not holding offers as much in the sixes and somebody can go through at like 650. It'll still sell probably first week or maybe second week, it, but you won't generally have to compete. But the 800,000 plus, like I've seen some of those sit for like 40 days or 45 days. So that's like definitely where the cutoff is of like, you're, you're not going to experience any competition there for sure. So we as investors need to find a way to monetize those deals. Uh, and that's, <laughs> that's the, the being creative part. And uh, Carlo was on this podcast a little while back. He does a lot in London. And, you know, one of his quotes from, from the episode that he was on uh, was saying, you know, I, I like to be able to pay more than anybody else can for a specific type of property because of what I plan to do to it, because I know that I can turn that into something profitable. And, um, that's just the creative part, right? Knowing how you can use something that maybe isn't overly apparent to everybody else. Uh, but you can see the vision, you can see what it could be. And it allows you to get those perfect burrs a little bit more often. Like you really lucked out. I think, I think for you, not, I shouldn't call it luck. You knew your market, you were watching your market and you found a great deal. I think you made the money on the buy. I think you bought that under market right off the bat. Yeah. Well, we got the other one yeah. under asking, like the second yeah. one we got under asking at 320. So it was yeah. even less. So, and they're, they're three streets apart from yeah. each other. So we, I, I can't say I'm some super genius. I was definitely a mm-hmm. darling of the market on the rapid appreciation that happened. Right. Um, what I can say is, as you said, I did, all the research I could, like I've done basement suites previously. So I knew what to expect. I knew what I was looking for. And I did all the research I could. I'm like, I know this area is good. It's got three public schools close by. It's got all these things. It's this quiet little area that, like you said at the beginning, nobody was really looking there. But so that's why I was able to go in and say like, well, these are perfect for basement suites. And they were basically unheard of in that area. There's really no other basement suites. So I don't have a lot of comparables to kind of go from, but then uh, that's why like when the inspectors were coming through, they're saying like, this is probably the nicest unit in the area because nobody's really looking at them. But in, like, you know, not many people are upgrading to the quartz countertops and the undermount sinks mm-hmm. and the, all the extras that we kind of put in. But um, so from the overall like spike in value and appreciation, I, can't, I didn't can't sit, take credit for that, right. but everything else like was definitely due to it. And that's not like anything special that I did. Everybody can take those actions. Everybody can take the time to yeah. research the area, become an area expert and figure out like, Oh, well, this is a good area for me to invest. There's not as many people offering on this. That's just taking action is really all it is. Yeah. Yeah. Taking actions. The, the big thing I, I've found the markets helped me a lot on, on a lot of my deals. You know, they, they were going to be a little tight on the numbers. And then, you know, the, the building ended up being way worth way more than I was anticipating by the time I was finished. And I, I think all of us investors would be lying if we said that the market hadn't helped us in the last several years because the market's just been going up. If you bought anything in the last five years, you're a genius because, <laughs> you know, the market made you look like, especially if you bought in 2015 and you yeah. look at your property now, it's probably doubled depending on some of the cities that you're in. But you're not some super genius who knew that this property was going to be worth 100% more. Like, yeah. the, it's Wait. just for the market for sure you can't bank on that that's the thing right no. i don't i don't like a plan that requires that i'd rather have a strategy for getting the properties for way under value uh, than be relying on them going up in value and i see I, I really do see people building in like the burlington area i've been wondering for years because i would crunch back of the envelope numbers i'm like there's no way these people are making profit 
at last year's prices when they bought the place, it's like they were literally anticipating that the market would keep going up. And by the time they sold, they'd be profitable. Yeah. And, uh, that's a risky game. Um, you know, it's a house of cards that can easily, um, fall. And, uh, that's not a game I ever really wanted to play. So that's where I think that just getting creative is, and, is and you're only left thing. with, you're only left with one success strategy. Mm-hmm. There's literally only one. Yeah, yeah, you can't rent it out. Yeah, see, that's <laughs> yeah. the other reason I don't like that. It's like you got to make money on the sale because you're not going to rent it out in cash flow because these houses mm-hmm. are going to be like multiple millions of dollars and you're just not going to get a rent that's going to cover that mortgage and tax payment insurance. Uh, so where it's so great, where you're into something like you're in, like you're into a property that valuing at 600 grand that's generating 3,200 uh, a month across two different units. Uh, so now you've, you've hedged against vacancy because you're not going to have both go vacant at the same time, most likely. Um, there's just so many things that make that a sound investment. Plus you're in a price point where it's very affordable uh, in against other rents in London. It's not like you're charging an astronomical rent. Uh, that's a very fair market rent, which means in all of this COVID stuff, we're probably going to see a greater growing demand for more middle-class rentals or lower middle-class rentals. Um, and you're perfectly positioned to, uh, to take advantage of that. So I, I really like that type of a unit in, uh, in London. I think that's great. So, um, really, really well hedged. Are, uh, are there other things that you like about London? I, I always talk about London all the time, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> what are your, what are your favorite things about London kind of compared to the other markets you've, you've been investing in? Well, the thing that I like about London is it doesn't specifically rely on Toronto's success because London is that first breaking point where you're not fully in the Toronto ripple, where like Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, I love them as cities and I live in Kitchener, but the ripple is so strong in this area where like we get so much overflow where we're just a commuter area now for Toronto. London's not a commuter area for Toronto. It's the towards the two hour mark. It's like way too far to do that every day. So it's way more of a self-sustaining entity than some of the other surrounding cities are in the GTA. And like, there's obviously still a lot of overflow with people moving down there, but it's just like you've got nice hospitals so you don't have to rely on the other things. You've got nice universities. You've got businesses that are moving there. I mean, especially when you drive to the uh, outskirts of the city now where a lot of the industrial parks are, there's like new buildings going up all the time and new companies that are moving there. And a lot of people don't know this about London, but it's actually a test market for most chains. Mm-hmm. Like the first McDonald's in uh, Canada came to London. And yeah. when they test all these like fast food places and these other ones, they do it because it's such a economically diverse city and um like like ethnically diverse city as well there's just so many different benefits to running it as a test market and getting data from and i think it's going to stay a strong city for that reason i do too yeah i've I've said the same thing self-sustaining market um doesn't rely on other cities it has its own industry its own corporate head offices its education healthcare everything's there uh it doesn't need to be a bedroom which it was a really cool thing It, it drives the markets around it like yeah. Toronto does, but just at a smaller scale. So yeah, that's that's the reason I've I've really liked it as well. Um, and you could still cash flow there, although it's harder. Yeah, it's definitely harder to get cash flow there now. Well, especially on purpose built duplexes, um, because they spiked so aggressively. Like I mean, even when I was looking six, seven months ago, so even still in twenty twenty, just earlier, you were still finding duplexes in the twos which is crazy. Like you could get a duplex for 290,000 or 280,000 mm-hmm. and it's like 280,000 for a duplex. Like even if their rents are really low, the rates are there. So it like kind of still made sense for the long term. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to make a lot of cash flow on that when those turn over. 
But now um, you're just not finding one under 350, under 375. They're creeping up on the four, kind of being that minimum range. And that's only in six, seven months because they were just so undervalued compared to other markets. Like to when you were comparing, you know, six months ago to a duplex in Kitchener, it was still 550,000. Where like a finished um, duplex, 550 in Kitchener? Yeah, it was that's still 500. Yeah. yeah, that's what it's higher now, but that's yeah. what it was. But now you're comparing, you know, a two hundred and eighty thousand dollar duplex to a five hundred and fifty thousand. Well, that was six months ago. Those the numbers in London still made more sense, and that's why people kept slowly, slowly going. Yeah. But now it's still four hundred, which is still cheaper now than Kitchener, which is now six fifty. It's so almost yeah. so much more to get a, especially like the basement suite properties. Now, if you see any of the basement suites in Kitchener, they're all selling like six six hundred, six twenty five, six fifty, depending on the. Level. Sounds like Hamilton pricing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very very similar. So you know, some people and and it's not like London, some amazing mecca where just because the properties are cheaper, you're making more money. That's also what I try to temper people's expectations because a lot of them have lower rents and the areas maybe don't get that high of rents so it's like okay guys just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's good you still need to do the market research for the area don't just come to london and buy a three hundred thousand dollar duplex because you could be buying on a bad street because a lot of those exist in london and i think i think the bigger concern is just really fundamentally poorly built houses there are a lot of them just like there are in hamilton neighbors you know where carpentry just you know these were clearly people paying the cheapest carpenter (laughs) not not in the nice area uh and i've i've bought houses like that multiple times that are just terrible workmanship on the build quality and and that's what you don't want to get into like i uh i have a pretty good picture i think i did street views of the ones you bought and like really solid you know i know that neighborhood too really solid uh bungalows um, those are those are the type that you know you you feel comfortable. I would feel comfortable investing money into. Whereas other ones, I just assume knock them down. And uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's so you got to you got to be careful. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of that in London, so you really got to watch out. Uh, and of course, like you said, the areas. I feel like every out of town investor all goes for East London along Hamilton Road. Um, you know that the, the area where traditional Londoners don't want to go there. But all the people coming from from East, you know, coming from Toronto and all that, they're like, oh, look at these cheap prices. So um, that's actually got a really good effect on London because it's making those areas better. People are buying, the, you know, in those areas and making them better. Yeah, because the, the example you just gave, like Hamilton Road area, yeah. um, there was some that were for sale uh, even recently at like 310,000 or 320,000. And like people were seeing that and going like, wow, like that's such a cheap duplex. Like, should we buy something like that? And it's like, okay, well let's look at the neighbors. Let's look at this. Let's look at the area. Cause Hamilton road has some like rough areas where you got to be committed to the long term <laughs> if you want to yeah. buy something like that. So yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I mean, for me, I wouldn't buy right on arterial, uh, arterial roads anyway. I'd yeah. always be off. But if you're right near uh, subsidized housing, a big housing complex or a, a large factory, those are the things I try and watch out for because those things aren't going to change. Like no. in Hamilton, if I'm right near Hamilton Harbor and I can see smokestacks, odds are those aren't going anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So so I, I try and avoid anything like that. If I'm looking for property, I want something that has no obvious stigma to it and, uh, and, and shouldn't in the future that allows that neighborhood to get better. That allows other people to come in and, you know, sure there could be a couple of ugly houses, but they could be knocked down or they could be renovated and, and improved. Yeah. So anywho, um, Spencer, I think we've, uh, kind of coming up on an hour here. Um, <laughs> where do people reach you or follow you? Uh, so I would say one of the best ways is you can always DM me on Instagram. I always answer those because, uh, usually, 
it's just easier because uh, obviously I have to run stuff off there. But um, so you can check out my Instagram. You can usually just search Spencer Gatton and it'll show up. Uh, it's just my name, Spencer Gatton. But I also have a YouTube channel if anybody wants to check that out. Um, I talk mostly about real estate almost exclusively, but some of the other stuff that I talk about, it's not necessarily deal specific. It's about learning your market and some of the other tips mm-hmm. that you can get when you're starting out investing. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say my Instagram or uh, my YouTube or my email is spencer at we are the agency.ca because that's my realtor email. If anybody's okay. wants to reach me through that, the agency, who else is with that? I feel like I know people at the agency. Yeah, it's a pretty is, big one in London. Is, that, is Jeff Weibold yeah, there? Jeff's okay. through that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I knew, uh, I knew there was a few people I knew there. Okay. Awesome. And, um, for anyone who hasn't already listened to it, Spencer had his other episode and like, I think it was number six or something like that. It was one of the earlier ones. Yeah, it was, it was number one four. Of one of the first, first 10 for sure. Um, so yeah, you can go back and we, we ran numbers back then and, and, you know, it's nice to see that you're still rocking it. You're, you're, uh, turning up the, uh, turning up the pressure here and, and, and going a little more aggressive. So, uh, very cool. Uh, any parting wisdom that, uh, that you'd like to leave people with based on our discussion today? Um, basically just circling back on the points we made, like, you know, nobody's a genius right now. It's just about taking action. That's really the big thing. Uh, it's doing the research for the area, maybe possibly finding a mentor, whatever it is. But, um, there's, I I say this, it's so cliche. It's so corny. There's no such thing as timing the market. There is only time in the market. So learn your fundamentals and, uh, invest from there. That's basically it. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you're in a $125 a month real cash flow, or even if your real cash flow is zero, but you're not going to put anything into it, a property that's worth 500000 today based on our inflation, based on the way our properties go up in value, in 30 years, that's worth at least a million. And yeah, so that one property can make you a millionaire. So that, again, there's no guarantees, but I just, I, I love that idea. And that, that was the one that got me. So one of the ideas that got me so hooked on real estate is you get your cash flow. And then on top of that, you, you know that your property is paying down and going up in value. Exactly. So it's, a, it's a great little combo. Anywho. Okay. Spencer, it's been great talking to you as always. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Let me know when that, uh, that refi comes through. And then of course we'll have to uh, grab a beer sometime next time we're both. In- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. Thanks for watching today's episode. Just a friendly reminder to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure that you smash the like and subscribe and notification bell. Uh, and also leave a comment. And Hey, while you're at it, why not share this episode with somebody you think it could help? It helps this podcast grow and I would really appreciate it. Thanks again. We'll see you on the next episode. 